Flying Talkers 2021, brought to you today by the people of ATC. From Frankfurt, Germany to the world, with offices open everywhere, ATC is the reliable general services and sales agent, GSSA, for top-rated customer satisfaction. If your airline is delivering service excellence, chances are ATC represents them somewhere. There's no secret sauce here. ATC's extraordinary expertise and service ethic harkens back to a time when results-driven cargo executives were the product of a lifetime of best practices and great training. So contact ATC, One World, One Great Air Cargo GSSA. ATC Aviation can be contacted at atc.aviation.com and tell them Flying Talker sent you. That's atc-aviation.com. This is Jeffrey Aaron. Welcome to today's Flying Talkers. You know, this time of year, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-1-1, that terrible day in New York 20 years ago, most of the reports we're seeing are news reporters, politicians, everyday people, firemen, policemen, the great heroes of that day. But we're seeing stories of people that were on the outside looking in. None braver than the uniform people that were going up the stairway while people were coming down. But most of the reporting is from people that were outside of the building. A couple of years ago, we presented a program with a guy that was inside the building, the Port Authority Director of Air Cargo, the head of cargo, a man named Jim Larson, ex-seaboard pioneer in the cargo business, had been around the airports for years and years and years. He succeeded Pete Spaulding, who was the first a top guy at air cargo in the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And the story that Jim told was absolutely riveting because he was there. He saved lives. He did things. He got out of the building. He was in the first uh, tower, Tower 1. Thought to play this again for you. We did it a couple of years ago, but we're going to play it again more or less the way we presented it. And uh, happy to report that Jim and his lovely wife, Annette, have uh, retired now for, I guess he'd been retired for at least 10 or 12 years. They live in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Interestingly, they live right near where the Hindenburg went down in 1937, another major disaster. Remember the announcer saying, oh, the humanity of it. Jim, after he went into retirement, after he had been that close to perhaps the end of his life, came back and volunteered for a number of years working as a guide at the World Trade Center Memorial, telling the stories of the World Trade Center day that he went through, but also bringing people to grips with exactly what it was like telling the story from the inside out. So we're glad you're here. 
welcome to today's Flying Talkers. Let's listen to Escape from the World Trade Center, the Jim Larson story, right after this. The morning of September 11th could best be described as ideal. The sun was bright, the air was clear, and from the 65th floor of the World Trade Center, I could look across through New Jersey, almost to the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Just a few odds and ends to take care of, and I'd be on my way out to JFK for a luncheon hosted by a cargo promotion group from the UK. The office was quiet, waiting for the aviation department staff to filter in for the start of another day, just another ordinary day. I was sitting at my computer and chuckling about a joke that someone had sent me via email when it hit. It wasn't loud. There was no explosion, no thunder, just a kind of whack. Then the building began to lean over. Things fell off the desk, furniture moved, and I made my peace with God, convinced that the tower was about to topple. But miraculously, it didn't. It snapped back and slowly went the other way. Like in an earthquake, the building continued to shudder for what seemed a lifetime, but what in reality was most likely just a few seconds. There was a brief silence as debris started to stream past the windows, falling to the street below. An aircraft, I thought? But how could an aircraft collide with a building on such a clear day? No time to ponder the question, I thought. Let's get out of this building. I looked for people on my side of the building and saw no one, so I took off for the fire exit and the staircase that would lead me out of number one World Trade Center. Two women came out of the south side of the floor crying. I ordered them not to use the elevators. Head for the stairs, I said. Everything is okay. The building is still standing, so the worst is over. Take your time. It's okay. We're safe now. At that point, I honestly believe that was true. I also think all of the people in the stairwell thought the same thing. There was no panic, no screaming, no shouting. Everyone proceeded in an orderly manner. They kept talking to each other. They helped those who were having difficulty breathing because of the smoke or difficulty walking for whatever reason. It was a slow walk down. We stopped every once in a while because of unknown delays below us, but all in all, the pace was fairly steady. As we got further and further down, I think we all knew that at any moment we would see rescue workers coming up the stairs. On the 27th floor landing, we came upon a man in a wheelchair. On each side of him stood his co-workers who were apparently waiting for the crowd to thin out so they could begin moving him down the staircase. We passed him and I thought for a moment, maybe we should try in some way to take him with us. But it seemed like there were no immediate danger and that it would be best if we just waited there until help arrived. I don't know if that man and his loyal friend got out. I can only pray that they did. At one point while we were descending, I thought I was succumbing to the smoke in the stairwell. I began to get unsteady on my feet. It was almost as if the building was swaying again, but I dismissed the thought and thought shortly afterward, well, I feel better again, we'll keep going. It wasn't until the next day that I realized it was the impact of the second aircraft hitting Tower 2 that made me feel that unsteadiness. Soon, we came to the point which we felt fresh air coming up from somewhere below us. 
Fresh air was only a few flights away. Firemen and policemen kept passing us and went up the stairs. Everyone was telling him about the man in the wheelchair on 27. When we got to the mezzanine floor, rescue workers were shouting at us to move quickly. Why all the urgency, I thought. They seemed more panicky than we were. It's all over. We're safe now. Why are you shouting? Then the first in a series of realities set in. As we moved from the exit to the west side of the mezzanine, to the escalators on the east side of the building, we looked out on the west street and saw the tremendous amount of debris all over the place at that west street entrance of the building. Glass was everywhere, and I thought if anybody was out there, they were probably dead or seriously wounded. We turned and headed east toward the escalators that led to the shopping concourse one floor below. At that point, we stepped into Hades. Rescue workers were shouting and urging us on. There was complete and utter chaos. We got our first look at hell. The glass partitions looking out over the World Trade Center Plaza were bloodstained. Parts of bodies and what appeared to be wreckage from the aircraft littered the entire place. The debris was so deep that the concrete surface of the plaza was not visible anywhere. Still, the harsh reality had not completely sunk in. It was more like we were all watching a disaster movie, like we were just observers. An out-of-body experience. There was more shouting and more urgent calls to keep moving. We went down the escalator steps, through the shopping concourse, and out onto Church Street. Being on the street was like coming to dry land after an ocean voyage. You almost felt like you wanted to kiss the ground. There was no time to stop. Rescue workers continued to urge us up on Fulton Street toward Broadway. As we crossed Church Street, we finally had a chance to look back and actually see the towers. At that point, the adrenaline kicked in. The buildings were on fire. They looked like two candles standing in the sun. We began to head north on Broadway. I stopped to talk to the wife of a co-worker. She also worked in Tower One and was searching the crowd for her husband to no avail. Did you see him, she asked. No, but I'm sure he's okay, I said. We had plenty of time to get out and he probably will be all right. We continued north up on Broadway. Funny enough, I was looking for a cigar store. I hadn't smoked in a while, but I had an overwhelming urge to have a cigar. For a moment, the urge took my mind off what was happening, and I was preoccupied with finding a cigar. We had planned to go to the City Hall subway station to get a train uptown, but when we got to the station, we were told there was no train service. They said we should go to 34th Street trains. Then they said to go to 14th Street train, but they must be running from there. So I was with two co-workers, and both were not doing so well. One has a severe back problem, the other had forgotten her knee brace and was starting to feel the effects of our walk. We turned to look back at the tower just as Tower 2 collapsed. It was amazing. This giant structure that we had come to regard as a fixture in our everyday lives crumbled before our eyes, creating a giant dust cloud reminiscent of the films we saw of the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Panic filled the streets as the clouds advanced up Broadway. In front of it, hundreds of people were screaming and running toward us. The only thing I could think to do was get the two girls out of the way of the crowd. We can't get hit with any debris. The worst we will feel is dust, I thought. 
but if we stay out here, there's a chance we'll get trampled by the crowd. I pushed them up against the fence at City Hall, and we watched the dust cloud advancing. Miraculously, it stopped about a hundred feet from where we were standing and lost momentum, settling to the ground. Safe again and blocks away, I looked back at Tower One. It was burning, and there was no doubt that it was only a matter of time before it too would collapse. I didn't know in what direction it would fall, but between us and the tower was the Woolworth building, so I turned my brave little group and I urged them to go north. Let's get out of here. If Tower One falls and hits the Woolworth building, we're going to be in big trouble. We headed for Canal Street with the hopes of getting a train that would take us away from the nightmare. As we kept moving, I constantly tried to call my wife on the cell phone, but I couldn't get through. I wanted to tell her that I was all right. I wanted to find out if anyone has heard from my son who works in the World Financial Center directly across the street from the towers. My thoughts go back to the last bombing of the World Trade Center in 92 and the fact that I couldn't get in touch with her then either. On that occasion, she ended up calling her niece, a waitress in a restaurant near Wall Street, to tell her that she didn't know if I was okay. Her niece's reply was, he's fine, he's sitting here at the bar having a gin and tonic. No such luck this time. I didn't have a chance to sit with a drink until 6 p.m. that night. But I thank God I was able to do it. Soon there was a call on my cell phone. My wife asked me if I was okay and told me that my son was on his way home. He never reached his office, saw the disaster and turned around as the story. Thank God. Moving north, the fearless crew now numbered five, two going to the Bronx, one to Long Island, one to New Jersey, and myself headed for Westchester. As we continued, it was obvious that the two women with back and leg problems were not going along too well. The further we got, the slower we moved. We continued to get glimpses of Tower One in the distance. It was still standing, but we lost sight of it as we passed a fairly tall structure that obscured our view. Then we saw another dust cloud. One World Trade Center, my home away from home, for the past 13 years, was gone. With it went many, many memories and many co-workers whose fate at that point was unknown to me. On we went uptown, our little crew feeling more and more the effects of the experience and getting weaker all the time. Then, lo and behold, a banner stating the home of the public theater. I know somebody who works there, so I went into the entrance, but I was told that no one was allowed in. Is she here? I asked, and all of a sudden, the way is open, and I'm escorted to her office. There I talked to the first person I'd spoken to all day who was not directly involved in the disaster. Our crew is brought into the lobby, seated, served water and soda, and they rest together the strength to continue the journey. An oasis in the middle of Manhattan opened up for us on 911. I thank you for your hospitality. Every day I think of public theater, and thanks to my friend, with a hug, for an understanding ear, always. Well, resting on our way again, the group now numbered six, my friend joined us. We reached 14th Street and found that there was no room at the inn. The subway was closed there as well. Next stop, Grand Central. We didn't think the group was physically able to make it, but we continued on. The next shop. Armed National Guardsmen were in the streets in front of what I later realized was an armory off Park Avenue. The realization that the roars we had been hearing 
in the sky were not low-flying helicopters, but high-flying fighters over our city, over New York, on a defense mission over American soil. It was too much to comprehend. When I was a little boy during World War II, I remember air raid wardens knocking on windows at houses and had lights on. I remember the black window shades that hung in our railroad flat in Queens for years after the war was over. But that was only a drill. No one ever got hurt or was ever under attack in America. Sure, there was Pearl Harbor, but there wasn't, that wasn't in America. That was some islands out in the middle of nowhere where our fleet was. Here today was reality. A hostile force had made an airstrike against the United States and had successfully destroyed two locations, two key locations. All of that aside, we were back in business, moving toward our next goal, Grand Central Station. From there, we hoped to get a train that would take the Bronx contingent home and probably afford some transportation to Queens for the Long Island-bound person in our group. Unfortunately, the group was running out of steam very quickly. Back pains were becoming worse, and the trauma of walking on a bad knee was obviously getting the best of the women. It was time to get some help. I walked into the middle of Park Avenue to traffic policemen and explained our problem, asking if he could flag over anyone who could take us and at least take the women to Grand Central. He was sympathetic and tried to flag down an emergency vehicle heading north, but of course they were on another mission and couldn't divert. Finally, we asked a gentleman in an automobile if he'd consider taking some passengers for the ride, which was then about 20 blocks. He said, of course, so we piled four of the group into his car and they departed for Grand Central with the plan that we, my friend from the public theater and I, would meet up at the station and go from there. Thank you to that gentleman in that car. You were a true New Yorker, willing to lend a hand when it was needed. I can't say the same for the numerous taxi cabs that passed us during our journey with their off-duty signs on and their cabs empty. My friend and I reached Grand Central but found no trace of the rest of our group who I later found had made it home okay. So when a departure was announced for a train that would take me home to Peekskill, I opted to get on it hoping that the rest of my group also made some sort of connection to their destinations. Our departure from the city was like leaving a bad dream behind. It was almost as though I hadn't happened. And it hadn't happened to me as well as our train headed north. I felt the comfort of finally resting from the terrible events of the day. That feeling overwhelmed me just before we reached Terrytown, when as we gazed out of the window at the smoke rising from the Trade Center, we saw a man standing in a small Hudson River park. The flag of the park was already at half-mast, and the man was quietly and casually watering the grass. I guess life goes on was the thought of that. In a minute, Jim Larson talks about the aftermath. Flying Talkers podcast brought to you today by your friends at Pay Cargo, the better way to pay and to save time and money. You see, Pay Cargo has a better idea. By simplifying the payment process to more than 3,000 vendors, cargo moves faster. 
PayCargo saves you time and money by expediting important data and funds to ensure rapid release of your cargo. Maybe best of all, you get the time to build your business assured that the PayCargo team is with you, providing trackable, tangible results every step of the way. So why wonder why most shipments in the PayCargo system get released in as little as one hour? Go to www.paycargo.com and explore a whole new way to pay and get paid. PayCargo offers flexible payment options and also available credit lines. And as the number one online platform in the world for cargo payments, www.paycargo.com can offer you a level of service, financial expertise, and connectivity that makes it easy to ship click and pay. So go to www.paycargo.com and get the rest of the story. Discover how PayCargo simplifies a better way to pay and get paid. And tell them Flying Talkers sent you. That's www.paycargo.com. Great people to do business with. Here, Jim talks about the aftermath. Arriving at the Peekskill Station and into the arms of my wife was an experience that will live with me forever. But at that point, the realization of just how close I had come to death's door was not yet real. During the course of the day's events, none of us had actually seen the disaster in total. We hadn't seen the TV coverage and heard very little of the radio broadcast, so the harsh realities of what had actually transpired were yet to come. But there was another experience waiting. The immediate love that poured from friends and acquaintances began. By then I was ready for a good stiff drink and I proceeded to my favorite watering hole right there in the train station. Here came genuine people, both casual and close friends who were on hand to greet me and to tell me how they had feared the worst and how happy they were. I was there with them. I told them I was equally as happy to be there as well. On the way home, my wife related a list of calls she had gotten during the course of the day from people in the air cargo community, both here in New York and abroad. That list seemed endless, and I felt the camaraderie that we have in our business and how it extends through all of us when we're in danger and need. Those communications continued for the next days, reaching from coast to coast and across the world. What a great air cargo community we have. What a wonderful group of rough and ready people make up the air cargo industry, I thought. And I still do. As I sat to watch the TV coverage, it hit. People jumping from buildings, people crying, people desperately looking for their friends and loved ones. The tragedy unfolded before my eyes and I was overcome with the sights and sounds of that day. The man in the wheelchair on the 27th floor, so helpless and forlorn. The firemen and policemen who passed us on the staircase. Brave men headed for what possibly was their demise. And now we were certain that's exactly what happened. I remembered one in particular, a fireman, quite hefty, loaded down with gear and obviously a little out of shape. He stopped for a moment on the landing to catch his breath, then continued up the staircase. I don't know if he was ever seen again, but I dearly hope he made it out. 
I remember my annoyance at the shouting of the rescue workers when we reached the mezzanine and felt guilty for feeling that way at the time. I now wonder how many of those good, brave, professional people made it out safely. Prior to this incident, I took all those people for granted and thought, well, that's their job. Now, I think while we were running away from disaster, they were knowingly running into it without regard for their own safety. I will never take those services for granted again, and I will never forget that one fireman on the stairs and the many others who we passed that day. The recollection of coming down those stairs, no panic, people giving encouragement, physical help to those who were faltering, is a strong one. It's okay, we're going to be all right, became standard, and was the marching song as we moved closer and closer to safety. Afterwards, I recall thinking New York excelled again as restaurant personnel stood on the sidewalk in front of their establishments giving out bottled water. Some even brought out hoses so that people covered with ashes could rinse themselves. Our restrooms were open to pregnant women and the elderly, read a sign in front of one of the establishments we passed. A small token, but a good heart, I thought. As these days and now years have passed, I mourn for those who didn't make it out. The co-workers, friends, and associates who lost their lives in a senseless act of aggression. But on the other hand, I fear for those good people who may be singled out because of their religious beliefs or because of the country they happen to be born in. We are good people. Those of us who survived this disaster have to keep in our hearts the realization that it was not the fault of an entire religion or an entire race, but the sickness in the minds of a relatively few individuals whose regard for human life doesn't stop with us. Their hatred goes far beyond our borders and the people they hurt even number their own countrymen. Well, Jim Larson, thank you so much for remembering that time so vividly just after it happened and happy to report that uh, that to our listeners out there that Jim is alive and well living in New Jersey as I said at the top and he has left an indelible mark for all of us in air cargo in a day never to be forgotten we shall never forget Thanks again to Jim Larson. What an incredible presentation. Satin wrote that all down, brought it over to the house a couple of days later. We looked for him. We didn't know where the hell he was because we were there on September the 10th. And as usual, I was out working. We still published a newspaper, Air Cargo News, that we had started at Kennedy Airport. First as the cargo paper in 1971, and then as Air Cargo News in 1975. So we were out in our old Volkswagen van. We were in the World Trade Center. We drove downtown and since the 1992 incursion at the Trade Center, you couldn't park near the entranceway anymore. But Sevilla had taken about 100 papers and started working the floors. 
in delivering air cargo news. As a brief aside, we started our distribution of air cargo news at about 15 airports in America, college campus style, just for the areas of the airport that had cargo, not the passenger side. Well, we went to the World Trade Center, to the commissioner's offices, and to the different offices. In fact, Sabia had spoken to Jim on September 10th. Said, Jeffrey's downstairs, he turned 60 today. Can you believe he's out working delivering newspapers? Well, I'm delivering newspapers. I was parked off of Church Street. You couldn't park in front of the building anymore in our van sitting waiting for her to come down. It was about just when he had happened to have walked in, maybe around 8.30, quarter of nine in the morning on September 10th. September 10th, one day before 9-1-1. And you can imagine, everyone remembers where they were the morning of September the 11th. And I keep thinking back to where I was the morning of September the 10th. Well, may they all rest in peace and God bless all the first responders, people like Jim Larson that came to the rescue of other people and used some good common sense, common sense that he learned as an operations guy in Seaboard World out at Kennedy Airport and as the leader of the cargo fortunes of that gateway when they were really starting to make some progress. Can never forget 911. Can never forget the wonderful people that are no longer with us. This is Jeffrey Aaron. That's it for our presentation today, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for your time, this time, until next time. This is Jeffrey saying, keep them flying, air cargo. And good night, Joe, wherever you